Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. I was just like this trapped person because he wouldn't let me work. He wouldn't let me interact with anyone. He monitored my phone calls home to my parents. But at that point, the violence was getting so bad, he was strangling me until I went unconscious. It was constant beatings, but I couldn't escape. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. When I was researching this episode, I came across a mountain of statistics. One in five adults experience domestic abuse during their lifetime. For every three victims, two are female, one is male. A domestic abuse-related call is made to the police every 30 seconds. While I know these stats were sourced from reliable crime surveys, how many more individuals around the world are suffering behind closed doors, trapped in cycles of fear, shame, violence and isolation? We'll never know. But what we do know is that domestic abuse is a crime. It is not an individual, but a social problem that we all need to speak out against. Abusers work hard through manipulation and coercion to destroy a person's self-esteem. They crave the power that physical violence or emotional abuse gives them. So, how do you find the strength to escape an abusive relationship, heal, and rebuild your life? Here's Katrina. I grew up in Ireland, in a little county called Tyrone. Beautiful area, lots of friendly people. My dad did have a gambling addiction when we were growing up, so times were always easy at home. I probably manifested my chaoticness in different ways. I used to beat people up. I used to have fights all the time out in the street. But I loved school, I was such a nerd. Loved school, loved reading, loved writing. Always loved creativity. And that was a real big escapism for me as a child, like reading books, writing stories. That was my like safe place, losing myself in a book. Teenage years were pretty hectic. Started drinking at 13, got sucked into the Irish drinking culture. I look back at my teenage years and the most important relationships I had were with my friends. And it is such a magical time for friendships, isn't it? Because you just talk about everything and anything and you have no money, but you still always have money to do things. You've always like streets to roam and you've always got freedom and you've no responsibilities. Absolutely dire years as well because of, you know, teenage bitchiness and teenage angst and constantly worrying about self-identity and how you look. You never really have any money of value to do like self-care activities you're reliant on parents or really badly paid jobs but definitely look back at it in rose tinted glasses because you just did have so much freedom ended up moving to Liverpool when I was 18 for university I don't know how I managed to get the grades for university because when I was a teenager I was working a full-time job so I was working like 38 hours a week and I also had like a massive drink and drug addiction as well because I was constantly off my face on ecstasy and weed and just partying non-stop but 
did get the grade. I think everything caught up with me when I went to uni. I had no sense of responsibility. I had no sense of self-care. I didn't know how to live independently. Katrina met her abuser while she was working in a pub, a job she would eventually lose for being drunk on shift. I've done that twice. At this point in her life, her wild university days, she'd found herself in a cycle of going out and doing drugs and staying up all night. But it was making her sick. She was fed up and wanted to distance herself from the ecstasy scene. So she entered a relationship with the man from the pub, hoping that this would be the change in her life she was looking for. At the very beginning, it was very much manipulation from the get-go. So it was very much love bombing. He thought it was the best thing ever. He was always buying me gifts, always throwing cash at me, almost this persona of caring for me. What I know now, technically crewmen, isn't it? Because they're over-affectionate, complimenting so much. And then within weeks, and it is literally weeks, you're almost dependent on them because they give you so much emotional investment and then it just stops and the violence hits really hard from very early stages. For me, it was almost a state of confusion because it was like, oh, wow, this is all happening really quickly. I've got sucked in. I feel a bit stuck now because I've kind of committed myself to this person. But I think deep down, I always knew that I didn't love him. I did not love him. We slept together very quickly, and he always held that against me, the fact that I'd slept with him so quick into the relationship. I wasn't really sexually active as um, a teenager. I had one boyfriend, and I really did love that boyfriend. Really did. So when I broke up with him, I was heartbroken. So the new partner, the controlling partner, he couldn't understand why I'd slept with him so quickly. He then associated me with being like prostitute. Basically, he really demonized our sexual encounter and held that against me as if it was some weapon and something to be ashamed of. He couldn't cope with the thought of me with anyone else. He would fly into jealous rages. He wanted me to be like this virgin angel. He used to say, all oh, your friends are no good for you. You know, your brothers are good for you. They've not got your best interests at heart. Look at all these things you've been doing. You ended up sleeping with me and just tried to really shame me into excluding them. And I fell for it. I remember him being violent in the early days and I rang them for help and they were like really concerned and they were like, get back over here. You know, the door was always, always open and they were like, what are you doing? But because I was feeling so shamed by him, I felt like I couldn't speak up. And I also had like a real fear, not only of him, but fear because I knew what my friends would do to him. So that was constantly always hanging over my head. It was always people, you know, classic question. People always say, well, why did you not leave? And for me, sometimes it was the fear of what my friends and family would do and the thought of them getting into trouble that made me just too terrified to leave, too terrified to speak out because if people knew they would act so violently in trying to protect me and trying to defend me that they would get in trouble and I couldn't bring myself to put them in that position. 
I ended up getting a job in the hospital with his mum. It was the only place that he would let me work because it was with his mum. I went to work with his mum. I got a lift there with his mum. She was such an enabler. She almost brainwashed me as well. And they thinking she would tell me how much she loved me and how much she like really cared for me and how obsessed it was with me. And looking back, it was because she wanted an easy life. Because when he wasn't manipulating me, he was manipulating her. Like she was a massive financial source for him. As well as working under the watchful eye of her abuser's mother, he and Katrina moved in with her. But the violence didn't stop. Instead, she witnessed it. She came to flying down the stairs and he had been strangling me, he had ripped my top off. Uh, so she knew, she'd seen, she seen firsthand. And then she calmed him down. I found my friends really upset and then it was all the sorries that he got and I felt ashamed, felt embarrassed, I didn't want my friends to know, I didn't, you know, she played, darn played it as well and said, oh, it must have been because it's something you did and then that's the cycle, it just started and happened all the time. Eventually, we moved to Manchester, we got a little apartment, but I was just like, this trapped person because he wouldn't let me work he wouldn't let me interact with anyone he monitored my phone calls home to my parents and gave out the illusion that he was caring for me and taking care of me and it was very a very lonely time of my life but at that point the violence was getting so bad he was strangling me until I went unconscious it was constant beatings and back then, the domestic abuse services were not great. So like a few times, the neighbours would phone the police and I would be the one that would get in trouble because I was the one screaming. Him and my brother had a massive, massive fight one night and my brother really beat him up. So after that, me and my brother actually went back to Ireland. But at that point, I was so, so low. Like I was completely embarrassed about how low I had got. I had no money and barely any clothes, you know, I never got my hair done or my eyebrows done and just things like the self-care wasn't there and it just felt really, really low. But I just didn't know what to do, like I was just so down and partner kept phoning and phoning and phoning, he was like, come back, things will be different, things will be okay, completely bombarding and like manipulating me into thinking that things would change. Katrina did go back to her abuser. Many abusive relationships follow this pattern of repetition. It usually starts with tension building, the walking on eggshells to keep the abuser from exploding. But eventually, the tension has to break, often in the form of physically lashing out, or, in the case of psychologically abusive relationships, name-calling, humiliation, or threats of violence. Then comes the honeymoon phase, when the abuser tries to make up for the abuse. Profuse apologies, promises to change, gift-giving, extra affection. Once there is an agreement to start again, the cycle of abuse starts over. And so this is where Katrina found herself, stuck in a cycle of domestic violence that can be easy to spot from the outside, but difficult, really difficult to break when you're in it. After that, then I felt pregnant quite quickly with my first child, who was so, so loved from the minute I conceived her. I was so over the moon to be pregnant. 
bizarrely enough. I know that sounds absolutely ludicrous, but you know, I had a little baby growing inside me that I knew I was going to love and cherish and going to try and take care of the rest of my life. But I hunts never stopped. So even when pregnant, like I was getting chairs flung at me, I was still getting strangled, still getting hair pulled from my head, waked about, thrown over furniture. And then in the midst of it all, I said to my partner, I really need a job to support this baby. So I ended up getting a little job in a sandwich shop and I absolutely loved it. I adored my job. I adored getting to work. And it was such a good way to make human connection and, you know, develop relationships outside of him. And I was really pleased and starting to see, you know, a bit of the future. And the financial abuse was just continuing as well because he got paid every Friday and he would take my wages. I never had any money for myself. And he was putting so much pressure on me as well to drink when I was pregnant. And I really didn't want to. And he was just completely controlling. He would even control what time I ate. He would control when I ate, what I ate. And I remember, like, I used to walk through Primark and see clothes and be like, oh, I'd love to buy myself that. Or I'd like to treat myself to that. And it was just an absolute no. I knew I couldn't do it. So I was very, still, still very dependent on him. He would show up at my work unannounced, constantly walk past the shop, keeping tabs. He just made sure that he knew what I was doing, who I was talking to, how much I was getting paid what he would spend my wages on like he dictated everything so then I think it was Friday evening and I was already really fed up and I had wanted to buy something in advance for the baby and he was like no we're going for a Chinese and you're using your wages to pay for the Chinese and he bought a bottle of wine and he made me have a glass and it's like I don't really want to drink because I'm pregnant and he's like really putting pressure on me and I remember we left the Chinese and he started hitting me outside in the city centre and I got really upset and I ended up walking away and getting the bus back while he stayed out drinking my wages. I'd got the bus back and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. So the very next morning he stayed out all night drinking and I used that opportunity to ring my auntie. There was no answer so I got the bus over. And I just broke down crying and they were like, right, that's it. You're moving in. And I was like, he's just hitting me all the time. It's really hard. And they were like, you're moving in. That's it. You're not going back there, which was great. So then I had a midwife appointment and this is like so hard when I think back at the domestic abuse services. So showed up at this midwife appointment, started crying to them and they were like, that Poor lad, he must need so much help. Oh, like, I see he's going to be okay. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm the one that's pregnant. I'm the one that's vulnerable. I've shown up here, crying my heart out with a baby and telling you that I have had to move out, that I've been chasing violence and I don't know what to do and I'm scared for me and the baby's future and you're concerned about him. Pretty much then, stayed away from him Ended up moving back to Ireland and he went mental. He was constantly phoning me every day, constantly torturing me, texting me. The bombardment was real. And then a few days before I was given birth, like I stayed strong the whole time, wasn't going to take him back. And then he landed over to Ireland a couple of days before I was going to give birth. 
And I said, I really don't want you here. Like, I'm happy for you to have a relationship with the baby, but it would be visits and it would be long distance. And I don't want you living here. I want my own life. And it didn't happen like that at all. So I went into labor and he showed up at the hospital. At that time, you could only have one person in the labor ward with you. I had chosen my mom and I really wanted my mom. And then she was like, there's the father of the babies arrived and he is refusing to leave what do you want us to do about it and I was like oh my god I don't know and then I started getting really distressed as well and neighbor so she was like right I spoke to the the head midwife and she's going to allow both of the men so my mom hated him at this point and it was the most awkward thing ever given birth I had him who I didn't like and actually hated and my mom who I loved and it was just the worst. And then the baby was born and it was like amazing. But he just wouldn't let me go. He was just, as soon as that baby was born and my mum was out of there, he was like, I want another go. I want you to give me another go. And because he was initially good with the baby, then I started feeling guilty. And I was like, oh, maybe I should give him another chance. Maybe I should give him another go. And it was just Obviously, your head is so in such a vulnerable emotional state in a way after giving birth. And then to have that constant manipulation there and that constant pressure and that ideal of what a baby needs, a mother and a father. And yet in an ideal world, in an ideal situation, that would be the ideal upbringing. But he was not a healthy role model. He was not a healthy parent. The only person he cared about was himself. Looking back, I don't think he ever felt love. I know he said he felt love, but I don't think he ever felt love. I think he only served his own purpose and his agenda was always him. I think he seen me and the baby as a cash cow because I was on maternity allowance, so I was getting whatever crappy statutory maternity pay there was. I was getting government help at that time as well because it was a newly single parent. So he was just using all finance to fund his drinking drugs and get back into control of me and kind of manipulate me. Social services were very easy to fob off. I was very good at playing the game and pretending everything was okay because again, I had that fear of what my family would do to him if they found out that he was still being abusive. One day, during this period when Katrina and her daughter were living back in Ireland, there was a knock on the door. It was the police with a warrant for her abuser's arrest. He had attacked someone with a knife during a night out back in England. Finally, Katrina had some respite from the abuse and a taste of what life could be like. He didn't stay in long. He was in for about eight weeks. And then when he came back out again, that was it. He was like, right, we're getting back together. And he was furious that I had, within that time, been having a social life, started a new job. I had started 16 hours a week in a coffee shop and he was not happy at all that I was getting independent and I was having friendships and I was going out and having a good time. Yeah, foolishly, I let him back into our lives again. I got pregnant quite quickly with my second child with him. Classic, classic questions. People say, why on earth did you have a second child? But I've always wanted to be a mum. I lived for my little kids, absolutely lived for them, loved them beyond words, still love them to this day. They were literally my little lifesavers. So yes, I do feel 
guilty that I brought them into the world with such a chaotic parent. But I don't ever, ever regret having my children. Sometimes wish I had to give them a more stable parental experience. But I was so good at putting on a front. I was so good at remaining calm. and knew every night that I was going to get beaten to a pulp. But I would just hold it together. Like I would get up the next day. They were my reason for getting up. I loved them endlessly and did so many good things with them. I could take them to all the little parenting groups, take them to the library, always read them stories. We'd, we used to bake all the time. We used to build sandcastles at the beach. And no matter what I'd been through the night before, I just always tried to give them as much of myself and as much stability and magic as I could. So... I went back to uni when my children were two and one. He was very, very reluctant for me to go to uni. He capitalised on a student loan. I would get back from lectures and he would rip up all my notes. I think then like the beatings were getting so bad because I'd moved away from where I lived with my family. So I was completely isolated up in um, the area near my university. And he knew that he could get away with doing whatever he wanted. So the beatings did increase in the violence and their like their harshness. It was quite severe at times. I was finding it harder and harder because he was getting me more into financial debt. He was like taking out loans and credit cards, all in my name because he had bad credit rating. And I just didn't want it anymore. I'd never wanted it anyway. I'd never really wanted him. I just got stuck with him and I just couldn't break free from him no matter how hard I tried. He was always there, always controlling, very coercive. It was when I was at uni that I just realized this is not the life I want. And I started phoning Women's Aid, Women's Aid, Women's Refuge. Started phoning those charities and kind of explaining the situation. Usually I would phone them inconsolable because something had happened and I had like maybe dashed off and I had to use phone blocks at times to phone them and she said to me this isn't normal this is not a normal relationship you're phoning me you've fled the house you're terrified you're phoning me for help she was like if somebody loves you they would not do that to you they would not be putting you in a position where you are fearing for your own safety and the safety of your kids and I will say he was never, ever, ever violent to the kids. And he was always very careful not to hit me in front of the kids. But he was becoming more in, inclined to hit me, even when they were around. He threw his keys once at me and, and split open my hair because I had taken him swimming without his permission. And it was just getting too much. So... Women say were like, we, we can't house you at the minute because they knew I wanted to leave. And they were giving me tips on keeping myself safe. Because I think he sensed as well that I was getting really, really fed up and wanting to leave. And I remember my mum and my auntie coming up to visit me. I think he had actually gone back to Liverpool because he was from Liverpool. He had gone back to visit one of his family members. And so my mum and my aunt had a rare opportunity to come up without him breathing over our necks and watching every move. And I remember my auntie putting a hundred quid that my grandma had sent 
And she was like, you hide that from him. That is your hundred quid. It's not much, but it's your escape money. You don't let him find it. You don't let him know where you've put it. And I, I hid the hundred quid. And I had devised this plan with Women's Aid that I didn't, because you need an escape plan when you're trying to escape. You're in a very, very vulnerable position when you're trying to escape because it's as if there's some weird, sick, evil sense. They just know that you're plotting to keep yourself safe and plotting to get away from them. So I had devised a plan, needed money, needed an escape for it. And Women's Aid were kind of supporting me as well. They'd put me in touch with a solicitor who would represent me when something went wrong and when I needed to get restraining order. The most dangerous time for someone experiencing domestic abuse is when they leave. In the UK, according to the Femicide Census, 38% of women killed by their ex-partners from 2009 to 2018 were killed within the first month of separation and 18% in the first year. Katrina described her escape as being triggered by the smallest moment. After all she'd been through and all this time devising her exit plan, it was when he threw a phone at her arm that she knew it was time to go. He left Bruce and he went to the toilet and that was my moment. That was it. I was like, I need to go now before he comes out of that toilet in an even more violent rage. So got in the car and I could see how I was kind of reversing and he opened up the door and he started shouting and roaring and questioning where I was going. And I literally drove to the solicitor that I'd been put in touch with through Women's Aid. I was crying and she she was about to go to courts and she was like, I can't help you right now. She was like, you need to go and report it. She was like, you've got the bruise in your arm. You need to go now. And that is how we will get the restraining order. So I went around the corner to the police station. I sat down with a woman police officer to report this crime. And I said to her, I feel so much relief from being here. I went, but what I'm reporting is the most minor, minor thing he's ever done to me. And she didn't probe it any further. She didn't, you know, question why, why is this the most minor when you've got a massive bruise, when you've fled your home and you're sat there in tears. Like there's so many missed opportunities to support me properly. At that point, she took my statement and then I remember I was allowed to go back up to the home to collect some things. So there was this kind of awkward Passover where he was arrested for hitting me. After that, I moved into refuge and I did get the restraining order. And then when my mum found out I was in refuge, she was like, no, can move back, back with us until you get yourself sorted. What was it like in those early days when you moved back in with your mum? It was very, very low. The guilt I felt was so overwhelming. I felt so guilty about the financial abuse because he had not only scammed me out of thousands and thousands, he had scammed my mum out of thousands and constantly checking out loans and just the borrowing of money and the squandering of money. So the guilt, I think, was probably the most overriding emotion in those early days. Shame. I felt so, so ashamed. 
I felt so ashamed of everything. How I got myself into that state. How I'd let him become so controlling over me. Yeah, it was very dark, very dark days. And nobody talked about trauma. Irish families, just, they knew I was feeling low and they were there to support me. And they were amazing and welcoming and really wanted me to get back on track. They really wanted to focus on positives and what I was capable of and building me up. But the trauma was just not spoken about. And I was very openly traumatized. I mean, how do you address trauma? I'm like, oh, here you've been through trauma for eight years. So I that worked out for you. <laughs> There's just no way really of opening it up. But again, the Women's Aid Services, some the first thing that one of the domestic abuse workers said to me when I signed into refuge, she was like, we are not a counseling service. And then I was like, great, because I really do need somebody to talk to. Um, and she was like, yeah, we, we don't offer counseling. Like, surely you should have some type of in-house counselling session available or somebody you can recommend when women are coming to you at their lowest, lowest point. It's It was such a strange world in refuge. Like, they would have beauty therapists come in and do beauty treatment. And I was like, great, wonderful, like, brilliant, so I can get my legs waxed and my bits waxed, but I can't tell anybody how I'm feeling. That some days were just get through days. But I think very early on as well, I just had this sense of freedom. It was so empowering. And there it, there is absolute empowerment in being independent. Having the freedom to make your own decisions and choose what you want for your life. You know, for the first time in absolute years, I could choose what I wanted to eat for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I never had that in the eight years that I was going with him. I, I never had the opportunity to even be in control of my diet. I never had control of exercising when I wanted. So I really focused on eating healthy, going to the gym, just exercising and moving more and taking pride in how I looked. And I absolutely hated myself. So when you hate yourself that much, it is difficult to take pride in yourself. I struggled massively with human connection in general. I, I just didn't know how to interact with people. I didn't know how to have conversation. People were happy to see me and welcome me back. And I remember just feeling the fear, especially around conversations with men and friends and boys. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't speak to me because I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to react, what to do. I felt completely broken on the inside and I was like, I don't know how to communicate. But it's okay to be, you know, broken and you have to kind of be broken for a bit. Going through a traumatic experience will leave you so in so many different pieces that you can't just continue as if everything is normal and everything's okay you have to take baby steps and do everything at a very slow pace learning to forgive yourself is the hardest part i think a lot of people who experience domestic abuse fall into a cycle of choosing similar patterns choosing similar people 
And you really do have to guard yourself from that. Like I think of nothing worse than looking for an our partner in those early stages. So I really focused on me. I focused on learning to like myself again, learning to get into healthier habits. Definitely not completely there. Still a work in progress, but I know how to choose healthy options in terms of self-care and prioritizing me. But I think human connection and genuine human connection gets so undervalued. Like I graduated from uni, which I thought was a massive accomplishment. And then I started doing a PG diploma in teaching English to speakers of all languages. So through that course, like my whole circle widened. I met really diverse cultures and nationalities and opening up to all of those different perspectives really helped me connecting with people from completely different cultures and backgrounds and listening to their stories and seeing where they grew up and sharing their experiences. I could just see that there was a massive world out there of possibility. But you have to be careful with the human connection. Like I was very, very careful, I think, in my early days of recovery. I avoid people that constantly seek drama or thrive off that chaos. I remember when I was trying to break free, all I wanted was normality and stability. So I've always seeked that. And even though I've had the amazing experiences, really good, valuable interactions, but with people that have raised my vibrancy rather than depleted it. So I think you have to really listen to your gut instinct and seek out calming relationships. My life is amazing. Not all the time, but my life is so precious and valued and I adore my life. I've worked so hard for my life. I know that I'm a much better person now than I was before all that trauma. I value what I've got to offer. I know I've got a lot to offer. I have had a really strong career. I have been a teacher for 10 years. So I've been really lucky with my human connection with the children that I've taught. I've taught primary. I've taught university students. So I've had really valuable relationships. They've given me so much meaning to my life. I've left teaching this year. And I now work in Portsmouth, in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, and I absolutely love it. I work in an office, so we've got such a really cool office vibe, very diverse, very quirky, and full people that just want the best for each other. I actually have a successful marriage, been married seven years. We've got a little boy. So there is hope out there after all the chaos. I chose very wisely with my husband. He is such a good human being with a really strong moral compass. He definitely my better half. Like I chose so much more wisely than him than he did me. <laughs> but there's just, he's just so kind and patient and caring and responsible. What does recovery mean to you? Recovery is an on going pursuit of becoming a better version of yourself than you were yesterday. Your brain and your health are your biggest assets. 
and they need taken care of. Recovery, you definitely have to work at. It's never going to be in a year. It's always going to be something, a work in progress. You can't put a time frame on recovery. Life still gets in the way. Like You still have episodes of life that it's not always going to be singing and dancing. I've had lots of battles. I've had lots of good times. I've had lots of things to recover from. Do I think that's going to be the end of my battles? No, because it's life, isn't it? Life has got so many twists and turns. But that first day in refuge, I remember taking a a photograph of myself on my phone and I said to myself at that point, I was like, no matter what happens in life, it's never going to be as bad as it is today. That was like my lowest, lowest point. When something bad happens, I think back to that time. And I'm like, you got through that. You promised yourself that you would get through it. And you did. And I know when life throws a curveball, as it will do, it's inevitable. I can look back at that and I can say, right, it was bad then. It is bad now, but you will recover. You've been listening to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery From Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>